This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for May 4th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, on previous podcasts, we spent a good deal of time discussing vaccines, but most of our discussion has been limited to the vaccines that are currently available in the United States and Europe. There are several other vaccines available internationally and more that are being developed. Today, we've published clinical trials of two new vaccines, one of which is already being used in some countries. I'd like to talk not only about these vaccines, but then more generally about the characteristics we're looking for in COVID-19 vaccines that may appear in the future. But let's start with the phase three trial of a vaccine, ZF2001, which is already being used in countries such as Uzbekistan, Malaysia, Indonesia, and China. How is that vaccine made? Well, before we talk about that specific vaccine, let's talk about the general classes. Right now, there are four general classes. The first are whole inactivated viral vaccines. These are simple to produce. They contain all of the viral antigens, and they use a technology that's been around for decades. However, the clinical studies so far suggest that they're not quite as effective at inducing immunity or providing protection as some of the other vaccines. All the other current vaccines are based on a single antigen, the viral spike protein. This antigen can be delivered in a few different ways, as an encoding RNA in the mRNA-based vaccine, a gene carried by a viral vector, as in the adenoviral vectored vaccines, or as a purified protein. Both of the vaccines we're discussing today fall into the latter category. They're both protein-based. However, ZF2001 doesn't use the whole protein, Instead, it's made up of only a fragment, the receptor binding domain. Because this is a pretty small protein, it doesn't seem to generate a very vigorous immune response. Thus, the vaccine developers have had to generally conjugate it to another protein, such as a fragment of an antibody, to increase its immunogenicity. The developers of this vaccine used a slightly different strategy. They linked two receptor binding domain subunits together to make a dimeric molecule that has been shown to have good immunogenicity in preclinical studies. The vaccine antigen is mixed with alum, which is a commonly used adjuvant to increase the immune response. So Eric, I think that there are several points that you allude to. First has to do, and as we've talked about before, the nature of the immunogen. And most of the vaccines in use focus on the spike. However, the whole viral inactivated vaccines, as you allude to, have multiple epitopes. And that's just important for us all to remember that that alters the immune response because it's more broadly stimulated for both immunodominant and subdominant potential epitopes, not all of which may be equally important in terms of virologic control. How to augment the immune response to the insert, the antigen of interest, is what a lot of work has been on. Part of it is focusing, as one of these vaccines does, on the RBD, the receptor binding domain, to make that more readily accessible by the immune system. Part of it is adjuvanting. Alum is a common adjuvant, as used here. And there are other strategies that have been used or in development, such as plasmid technology to try and deliver the sequences as different ways to get the sequence of interest to the immune system. So I think there's a lot embedded in the different platforms, both by the delivery system and the insert and the adjuvant system. 
and these different types of constructs and the studies that we'll discuss and the other studies that we've discussed before shed different kinds of light on how we elicit immune responses. So getting back to ZF2001, how did the trial work and what did the investigators find? This was a pretty typical phase three vaccine study. The vaccine or placebo were administered at three doses spaced a month apart. The researchers then followed patients starting seven days after the last boost for the development of infection and for severe disease. They also monitored for safety signals. The vaccine was well tolerated. It produced the usual reactogenicity symptoms. The rate of these seems to be a little lower than that seen with mRNA vaccines or viral vectored vaccines, although it's really impossible to do a head-to-head comparison between trials that were done at different times. Serious adverse events were similar between vaccine and placebo groups, and there was clear evidence of protection with a protective efficacy of about 75% for infection with somewhat better numbers for severe disease. It also appeared that the vaccine was effective in preventing COVID-19-related death, the numbers were very small. The trial was performed before the Omicron wave, and we know that other vaccines have been less effective against Omicron and related strains. It's impossible to make a direct comparison, but this does appear to be another effective vaccine. And then we published today on a second vaccine, which is actually a vaccine candidate that's protein-based. How is that different from the other available vaccines? This candidate, and it's a candidate because it hasn't been approved anywhere yet, is called CoVLP. The VLP part is an abbreviation for virus-like particles. But don't be misled by the name. These aren't viruses. In fact, they lack most of the viral proteins. Instead, the vaccine is made up of the full-length spike protein, which associates into trimers, which assemble during expression into small assembled particles that are about the size of viruses. So this during expression part is important. Because what makes this unique is that the protein nanoparticles are expressed in tobacco plants. Tobacco is an attractive plant to use because it can be easily manipulated genetically. And it's a hardy plant that can be grown in many areas. So it's an attractive vehicle for producing these recombinant proteins. For the vaccine, the particles are mixed with an artificial adjuvant, which has been shown to increase immunogenicity and to induce T-cell responses. And what did we then learn from the clinical trial of this vaccine? This trial was very similar to the one we just discussed. Vaccine or placebo were administered as two doses in this case, given 21 days apart. And the primary outcome was, again, the number of infections occurring at least seven days after the second dose. Once again, common side effects consisted of the usual array of local and systemic reactions, although these occurred at an apparently higher rate than in the prior study, probably due to the adjuvant that was being used. There were only a handful of more severe reactions, mostly in vaccine recipients. Altogether, vaccine efficacy was about 70%, with slightly better efficacy against moderate to severe disease, though this was a post hoc analysis. Once again, the study was performed before Omicron strains were circulating. So we've got two protein-based vaccines, both of which provide broadly similar protection against both infection and severe disease. So Eric, it's reassuring to have multiple studies continue to show that vaccines have reasonable efficacy against COVID. These different strategies of preparing the antigen or presenting it, ZF2001 is somewhat like our annual flu shot that we've received, where you have part of the flu spike protein equivalent with an alum adjuvant. There are many similarities. 
And that's reassuring that the biology behaves. It is exciting to see different types of manufacturing strategies that may raise different types of immune response that we can potentially exploit as we try to understand how to develop broader and stronger and more durable immune responses against COVID. Accompanying these two articles, we published an editorial entitled, Does the World Still Need New COVID-19 Vaccines? So let me put that question to you, but I'd like to split it in half. First, are we reaching the point where we have enough vaccine to go around? Steve, we do have a lot more vaccine available of all types. And we are reaching the point where soon there will be enough vaccine doses for everyone. However, there is still a lot of difficulty reaching everybody. Some of that is for preference reasons, is that people are not choosing to get vaccinated. But some of it is for logistical reasons, like the ability to ship vaccine and have it be stable. So there clearly is a need for vaccines with different physical characteristics those that don't require cold chain storage in particular, and those that could be perhaps produced locally and shipped locally and finally have a longer storage half-life. So I think there are a lot of characteristics that we're looking for in vaccines that could help us deliver vaccine to a broader group in the world. So Steve, uh, look at this question somewhat from the other side, which is, we're not getting vaccine everywhere it's needed. And Eric, I think you alluded to this, but I think that we as a community have failed somewhat at having enough vaccine delivered to everyone who could benefit, particularly in lower resource parts of the world. And I think that's what's exciting and important about these additional studies is that are there advantages of new constructs that, as you say, Eric, can have less of a cold chain requirement or a better shelf life so that the issue of shipping, transport, storage is less of a demand and manufacturing reagents. So I think the manufacturing side and going to scale is something we as a community have not invested enough in and invested enough in different regions of the world where local production would have certain advantages. So I think we've come to a terrific place in that we have lots of different constructs that work and lots of different technologies that show efficacy, but we still have to reduce it to practice, global practice. Lizzie, it's a great point. And I think the point is not just about the current crop of COVID vaccines, but it's about the next outbreak to occur or even the next generation of COVID vaccines. It's clear that we failed to deliver vaccine rapidly to most people in the world. And if we're going to fix that, the fix isn't going to be just to build a bigger factory in the U.S. and ship from here. It is to have local development and local manufacturing capacity. And I think that that's the idea behind a, for example, a tobacco-based vaccine. It might be something that's easier to produce, although I think that remains to be determined for this specific construct. And Eric, I think that enhancing local and regional capacity not only has the technical elements of the manufacturing plant and the requirements, but there are regulatory and other infrastructure that have to be developed. And I do think that now is a time for us to collectively think about how do we improve these systems globally 
to be able to deliver vaccines better to those who can benefit. And your point about it being beyond COVID is so important. There are so many other vaccine-preventable diseases, both endemic and in our future, that we need to have the structures in place to be able to respond a lot more nimbly than we are currently. We've talked about this in various forms, Lindsay, before. The whole COVID outbreak is a disaster. It's cost millions of lives. It's horrible. If we don't learn something from the experience, then we will have compounded the disaster. And one of the things that I think has become clear is that we need to have global capacity, global research capacity, global development capacity, global manufacturing capacity, and as you say, global regulatory capacity so that governments can feel comfortable using the products that are being produced. I'd add to that, of course, that we have difficulty in many places in the world in having the population have some faith in the science behind what we're doing. That's a problem that we haven't solved during this outbreak, and it's something that's going to bear a lot of thought. And the second half of the question, beyond longer half-life, no need for a cold chain, what characteristics do you think we want to see in new vaccines? I'd summarize it as they should be better than the ones we have now. I mean, of course, as we've said repeatedly, the vaccines we have are pretty good, but they're not as good as they once were. If you think back to the original outbreak and the original vaccines, they were highly effective at not only preventing serious illness, but preventing infection. We don't have that tool anymore because with the new strains, the vaccines we're using right now have a limited capacity to prevent infection and transmission of virus. So we'd love to get back to having vaccines that could do what our original vaccines did. Now, will that take better matching of vaccines to circulating strains? Or will that take a new technology or a new way of delivering antigen? I'm not sure, but I think all of those things are in the works and they're going to be very important to explore. I will add though that giving the same antigen in the same ways is unlikely to be the approach that's going to resolve this issue. So Eric, I think you're absolutely right that a big challenge is the virus is evolving the ancestral strain to now the Omicron, which now dominates in its descendants, raises a key issue, Steve, that we have to come to terms with, which is what is the antigen of relevance? And that may change over time. It has changed over time. And we need to understand how to scientifically determine whether it's a strain-specific vaccine or hopefully a pan-coronavirus vaccine, or at least a pan-SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, so that we don't have to worry as much about strain variation. There also, I think, a key issue which we as a community have to come to terms with, which is what is the goal of vaccination? And we've discussed this before. Is it preventing infection, severe illness, transmission? And that's something we have to recalibrate our expectations of what we want to achieve. I'll continue to remind us all that there are seasonal coronaviruses that we never cared about. And can we transform SARS-CoV-2 into one of those because the nature of the illness is so mild? And I think another key consideration in what we want in vaccines and future vaccines is how they behave in special populations. What I mean by that is in our immunocompromised or those with weakened immune systems, 
how do we enable the immune response to be robust and protective in those whose immune systems are sluggish and unable to respond to infection and to pathogens? And Eric, as you allude to, the same antigen by the same delivery system may not overcome this. And so we have to think about different ways of stimulating the immune response and whether it's better adjuvants, whether it's combination vaccines, whether it's really understanding the immune defects in different populations, be they B cell or T cell defects. I think that's another element that we have to come to terms with is, will it be a one size fits all or will certain kinds of vaccines have advantages in certain populations. These are things which science can help us sort out, and then we need to figure out how to scale up in a easy-to-use deliverable fashion, realizing that there are still remaining many challenges in our response to COVID and in our vaccine effectiveness. Now, having said all that, I think that there are a lot of interesting approaches out there that are either being contemplated or even in clinical trials. So I'm hopeful that we're going to see interesting results coming up soon. And that once we have those, they may end up taking advantage of some of the methodologies that we're talking about. Certainly mRNA vaccines against variants are being tested right now. And we've heard some about them on the news, even if we haven't seen published results for many of these. And there are viral vectored vaccines being used on mucosal surfaces, although they're different from the viruses that are being used right now administered systemically. So it will be interesting. I think that there is a lot going on and we can be very optimistic about what's coming up. Eric, I couldn't agree more. I think the technologies that have emerged over the last year or two that have demonstrated efficacy are incredibly exciting and have incredible potential. And the ability to exploit them through, as you point out, mucosal or other strategies of immunization or in combination is very exciting. A point that you made earlier, Eric, that I think is important to highlight, during the interpandemic period, we need to continue to push the science forward so we understand how to use the tools that have been developed over the last year to their full advantage. And that's something that we have to stay focused on because through that kind of scientific process, we'll be in a much better place for the next event, which unfortunately is inevitable. Pandemics are part of infectious disease, of course. And yes, there might well be more pandemics following this rather large one. However, the same tools we're developing for COVID and we've learned so much about are really going to be applicable to a lot more infections. So I'm also optimistic that we're going to learn more about developing vaccines for some of the world's big infectious disease killers, the HIVs and the TBs of the world, from what we've done with COVID. For example, the use of mRNA vaccines gives us a tremendous amount of flexibility to design and test new vaccines quickly and safely. So I think that there is a lot of potential in what we're doing for being applied to infectious disease and perhaps some non-infectious diseases as well. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.